Ой, шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при их на момент прийти, И сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where each week we cover topics relating to Eurasian politics, history, and society. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Two guests today, first Elliot Borenstein on Russian culture under Putin, and then John Paul Hinka on Ukraine's historical memory laws. My first guest is Elliot Borenstein. Elliot Borenstein is a professor of Russian and Slavic studies at New York University. He is the author of Overkill, Sex, Violence, and Russian Popular Culture after 1991 and he blogs about Russia at All the Russia's Blog. As you know, and, and everyone knows, Vladimir Putin has been president of Russia for 15 years, and he's really kind of dominated the scene in many ways. Um, to, to what extent can we speak of a, of a Putinist culture? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question that I wish were a really terrible question, um, because one of the things that that I found um, gratifying about the 1990s, and yes, I sound like one of those Western liberals who liked the 1990s or were suffering, but one of the things that was gratifying was we stopped talking about culture in terms of um, who the leader is. Um, you know, we, we had Brezhnev and so on and so forth. In the United States, you know, we really don't tend to do that, right? I mean, we don't talk about Clinton-era literature. I think the only exception is Reagan, because... Um, it lasted a long time. It started at a at a round year, and it really did seem to be a huge shift in the culture, with the president kind of at the forefront or as a as a um, as a figurehead. But normally, um, here in the states, and I'm not saying the states is what's normal for everything, but it is the point of reference. We don't do that. So um, I thought that was a breath, breath of fresh air. And in the first several years of this millennium, um, I don't think there was a need to talk about it in terms of Putinist culture. Um, yes, there was certainly some difference from the Yeltsin era. Yes, it, um, uh, there was a different mood and so on and so forth. But a lot, a lot of that could have been um, ascribed to economics. And, and most important, during those first two terms, um, there seemed to be this kind of, uh, you know, grand entente that, um, you know, you stay, out of, you stay out of politics and I'll stay out of culture. Um, so there was this, so there was a sense of, um, of separate spheres and, and real room to, to breathe. And I think it's only, it's only in the past couple of years that it does seem like we need to talk about a Putinist culture, but ironically it's crystallized now, but I think people read it backwards over the past 15 years and you see the roots, but it wasn't this, you know, three decades from now, we might call this high Putinism or something. Right. I've already seen this kind of term crop up this kind of high Putinist idea. Yeah, yeah, and and it makes sense. I'm always a little leery of uh, of our tendency to name eras the day after they started, um, but but it, this, there certainly does seem to be something something different about it. So yes, I think these past couple of years there is something that could be considered a Putinist culture, a United Russia culture, um, something like that. And it's um, and for you know for people. For people like me, uh, probably for people like you, it's, it's not an encouraging development. Yeah, and, and what would, how would you identify such a culture? Because, I mean, Russia, you know, as we know, the, the Avengers movie is coming out in a week, and I'm assuming, <laughs> like everywhere, this is going to be a huge deal in Russia. They're not isolated from general Western global popular culture that mostly emanates from the United States. So how do you identify what is Putinist about it? No, that's true. But remember that when the... Uh, second Captain America movie came up. They didn't call it Captain America in Russia. Um, 
Fair enough. Really, it's a terrible name. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So it, it is a contradiction, right? They're, they're never, I don't think they're ever going to go back to that kind of um, isolation from, from um, mass world culture that they had um, in um, up to, you know, the 60s and 70s. People are still going to consume this stuff. But what I think a lot of people forget is that it is quite possible to consume American mass media and enjoy it and not feel any connection with any of the the values that the um, that one assumes the um, media are putting forward, and that's true within the United States as well, right? I mean, you can watch, you can, you know, I watched every damn episode of Twenty Four and hated it, and found the ideologically so um, upsetting, and I kept watching. Um, so if I can do that here, I imagine Russians can watch the Avengers with the same kind of um, healthy cognitive dissonance. You know, really, since in, in speaking about this kind of now, perhaps we can start speaking about a Putinist type culture. I mean, really, since Putin came back for his third term, we've seen more and more of these moral panics and public scandals, um, particularly in an effort to protect so-called conservative or traditional Russian values. Um, you know, I just saw today that they closed down a, a, an exhibit um, of of World War II about Bryansk because there were pictures of children smiling in occupied Bryansk. It was, it's quite it's quite incredible how many of these scandals keep popping up. Um, how do you explain this upsurge of Russian political correctness? Yeah, using the term political correctness is funny, of course, because um, it's such a it's such a term of abuse in in Russia right now and so caricatured. But what the way I see what's going on is. Um, well, for one thing, in the West in particular, everybody ascribes everything to Putin himself, right? That, that as, if, as if this one man is standing there pressing all of the buttons. And, and of course, I'm not denying that he has a lot of buttons to press. Um, but what you do see is, um, I think what became clear actually when Putin was not officially president, when he actually had to have a party that did something, you know, United Russia, that, um, that Putin sets a tone, um, sets kind of the parameters of what is acceptable what we, what um what the you know moral and political goals might be and then people run with it you know he only used the term fifth column once um and we hear it everywhere i think he only used the term national traders once um and there we go or um you know the few things actually he said about lgbt people are kind of like a dog whistle for the people out there who want to go beat the crap out of them so, um, so it's a matter of the, sh- the shifting of, of, of what is acceptable and, and um, what the values are, are supposed to be. Um, and I think there is a segment of, there's a segment of society that is really happy to be able to feel like, um, there, there are firm values for which we can all fight. Would you put this in a context of a, of a general kind of backlash against globalization, because we see this not just in Russia, we see it in the United States, certainly we see it in, in Europe now with the kind of emergence of a right-wing conservative movement. Is this a, an anti-globalization reaction to some extent? Well, maybe, but I think when we think of it in terms of anti-globalization, one of the things we're doing is we're making it sound more palatable. Um, because once it's anti-globalization, I think we can all think of reasons why one might support anti-globalization. Um, but I think it's—I think of it as largely a local phenomenon that is legible um, in, in an anti-globalist context, but isn't necessarily motivated um, by the same things that motivate um, anti-globalist protests um, elsewhere. How has the, um, and you've written a bit about this, um, how has the crisis in Ukraine influenced Russian popular culture in the last year or so? 
the, the influence goes in, in, in multiple directions because um, one thing I've noticed as I've, I've looked back is the way in which um, a sort of fringe elements of popular culture uh, paved the way for all of this. And I don't mean that um, these particular elements I'm about to describe made this happen, but again, um, put this on, a, on a, a continuum of the imaginable. For the past decade or so, um, I've been... I've always been struggling with the idea that I, I might be paying too much attention to fringe elements in mass culture because I just find them fascinating to conspiracy theories and all the stuff that, that I've been looking at for, for many years. And now a lot of that stuff is moving from the margins to the center. Um, and the idea that Ukraine was, um, that Ukraine is a, a beachhead for, uh, U.S. hegemony, that, um, that there will be a war in Ukraine over a kind, over a, um, Russian versus Atlantic set of worldviews that has been popping up um, for some time, and there, there's an entire subgenre of dystopian science fiction called cyberpunk, um, by analogy to cyberpunk, which is all about the the hell in which we're going to live when the tri- when the values of liberalism and tolerance triumph and turn into totalitarianism. And Ukraine, yeah, and Ukraine uh, plays sometimes plays a role in all of this. So there is this thread in, um, in a kind of fringe element of mass culture that then um, looks more significant with the benefit of hindsight. And now, you know, the pop, it's too early to say how this is playing itself out in, say, um, literary fiction because it's, or even film because the time frame is too slow, really, for things like that to react. Um, but remember, a year or so ago, I think there was a staging of an, of an opera. I can't believe I'm forgetting the name. It's a classic opera. Um, where it was transposed to um, the the struggle for uh, for uh, reuniting with Crimea, um, and it became this great moment for for patriotic fervor. Um, and then, actually, where you really see this on YouTube, um, people on their own producing these um, sometimes elaborate, sometimes not so elaborate um, testimonials, poems. Um, in particular to Novorossiya, back when Novorossiya was something you were supposed to talk about. I mean, that stuff is all over the net. That's where you really see it. I mean, the influence of the Internet is huge in this kind of upswell of, of popular culture in general, but also this, this bottom-up uh, kind of scenario you described earlier. And, and it also, it's another example that I think really um, shows how right uh, Evgeny Morozov is when he argues that um, people who think that the internet is, by definition, liberating and helps bring about some kind of democratic renaissance and overthrow tyrants. But these people are deluding themselves. Um, now, what what place does Soviet culture play in, in Soviet nostalgia in, in the wider field of Russian culture today? Well, it plays a very big role, and and my friend Marty Pavetsky has written about this um, at um, quite well um, at various times over the past decade. Um, you see a lot of revalorization of the trappings of the Soviet Union and a kind of um, almost deliberate forgetting of um, of the aspects or denial of the aspects that are a little bit less savory. I mean, in a sense, what you see is a, a logical continuation of, I guess we could say, this Putin-era emphasis on sovereignty and on great power. And one of the ways of understanding how you can combine you know, this uh, constant emphasis on the state-building role of the Russian Orthodox Church and the glories of the Soviet Union and Stalin's great role in saving the Soviet Union from the fascists, how all of these things can be part of one story without contradiction is that the thread that unites them is um, is a great and powerful Russia-slash-Soviet Union. 
and that the actual the actual specifics of the ideology beyond great power are less important. Yeah, and and as from a historical perspective, I've seen this kind of effort since uh, under Putin is an attempt to kind of reconcile all of the kind of historical contradictions of Russia into one grand narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I like to try to think of this sometimes in um, terms of American parallels, again, just to make it more legible to, to people here. Um, if you think about how hard it is for people in the North to even begin to understand or sympathize with, with people in the South who talk about the heritage of the Confederacy, um, and I'm not certainly not trying to defend the heritage of the Confederacy, um, but presumably there's something going on there besides simply racism. You know, that the, the racism is there, but there, there's something more. Um, and so I think it's, I think for a lot of people, it's just very hard to, to part with anything that looks like a kind of greatness in the past, no matter what horrible things it did. The Russian uh, culture minister, Vladimir Mendinsky, uh, is reviled and ridiculed in many, in many ways, but nevertheless, he plays quite an anonymous role in regulating Russian culture. I mean, we have, over the last few weeks, he fired the director of the Novosibirsk Opera and Ballet Theater over the production of Wagner's opera Tannhauser. Uh, last week, uh, the American film Child 44 was uh, banned for its alleged negative depiction of the Soviet Union. What impact does the culture ministry play in shaping the arts? Well, with the Tannhauser thing, part of the impact is, um, is that it, it has, um, it has well, legitimate is probably not the best word, but it has bureaucratic authority over things that are at least in part funded by um, by the, the culture ministry, so that at least makes some um, structural sense. But also because um, because the cultural ministry does have the power to say no, this this important thing should not be shown. Um, yeah, there is, there is a potential for terrible abuse on its part that we're starting to actually see. There, there, because of the um, the way that the government is structured, there's long been potential for huge amounts of, of um, cultural repression and censorship, but potential that hadn't been um, activated uh, for, for quite a long time. And now um, now he seems to just be casting about for more things to ban. It's very disturbing. A, a lot of the, these kind of back to these moral panics and, and scandals, a lot of them have to do with sex. I mean, uh, Pussy Riot was, was in many respects sexualized. Um, homosexual the issue about homosexuality, of course, is obvious. And then, of course, last week we had this weird twerking scandal out of Orenburg. Um, uh, what what is this the source of this kind of outrage about the about sex in Russia? Uh, well, um, one you know one simple thing to look at is um, the the way in which um, representations of sexuality that have long been um, uh, repressed or, or underplayed until uh, the late 80s and 90s, the way that all took off so much and people were scandalized. Um, but by the same token, you would, I would sort of thought by the beginning of the 21st century, um, these were less hot-button issues, um, that a lot of people were used to the idea that the culture had gotten sexualized and kind of crass. Um, but partly with the rising authority of the, of the Orthodox Church, um, you see a great emphasis on this whole question of moral values, which inevitably brings in in sex, what's shifted, and what I think is really new, um, in as far as I can tell, in the history of Russian culture, is the way in which the dan- the moral dangers are being framed. Um, in the West, particularly in the U.S., we have a long tradition, at least going back to the 1950s, 
of moral panics that, that focus on the children. What about the children? What is happening with our children? But I'm um, going back to you know the, the the comic scare in the 1950s, juvenile delinquency, eventually video games and first person shooter video games and metal, of um, course. Metal, yes, child sexual abuse um, in daycare centers. That is for the past several decades in the U.S. We're really familiar with the idea of framing danger in terms of protecting the children. Um, and well, I don't want to say that. Russia doesn't protect, want to protect its children, you know, like Sting's line about do the Russians love their children too. Um, I don't think there's been a history of framing almost every moral issue in terms of the vulnerable child. And now the vulnerable child um, is at the center of so many of these things, the adoption stuff, certainly. Um, the internet, um, uh, the twerking, the representations of sexuality, all of it, and, and t- or even saying anything vaguely positive about LGBT people, all of this is put in the context of protecting children, but children don't even have to be there at any given moment for it to be framed in this particular way. So we have this notional vulnerable child that's being invoked, I think, for the first time. Huh, that, that's quite interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think of, you know, in the, I, I know the 1920s and youth culture the best, and not in this sense that I get. I mean, it was more about the kind of an ideological, uh, like, infects, infestation or infection rather than the moral standing of children. That's that's true, right. I think. And their innocence in particular. Right, that is interesting. Huh? Do you have any kind of theories as to why this shift has taken place? It's not particularly. I mean, I think whoever came up with it first came up with a model that then turned out to be really useful and portable. Um, I mean, some of it was widely ridiculed, like um, not being able to show the beloved uh, cartoon Mupagadi because the character smoked. Um, but once it's it's hard it's hard to pose yourself as being against protecting the children. Um, so I think it's more most likely that someone stumbled on this and then they ran with it. However, I mean, there is there is um, a decade-long um, history of a lot of interaction between um, some elements in the, I don't know if we can call it the Russian right wing, it's very hard to use right and left, but this particular wing in Russian culture and, um, and right wing activists from the States, ironically. Um, I don't see how that would directly influence it, but it is a possibility. I think it's more just um, someone came up with an idea. Yeah, interesting, huh? Now, as as you already mentioned, you you spend a lot of time looking at uh, alternative cultures in Russia, and and what what about the spaces of alternative cultures, and and what trends do you see that are worth highlighting? Well, one trend is 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 that they're in danger. Um, it's particularly any place where um, where alternative culture has to have a physical space for it. Um, that the, uh, the the authorities can take that space away. I mean, look at what's happening with Teatro Book. Nancy Condi tomorrow is presenting a wonderful paper at this event I'm going to, where she's talking about the use of uh, fire code regulations to um, shut down shut down controversial places. And you know, who's going to say no? We want fires. Um, so when there's a physical venue, um, these these cultural expressions are in danger. But now that there's also the movement towards suppression on the internet. Um, that is really that has really huge um, potential to to um, to crush or push out a lot of alternative expression. I mean, a lot of that depends on um, how well VPN services are using and how uh, how well they're working and how widely they're used. Um, but for instance, for for say the LGBT community, the the big problem there is um, you know matching up uh, the people who need 
um, some sort of contact with the LGBT community with um, actually those technical resources. I mean, the only hope is that presumably the younger people are better at using VPN and Tor than and their older relatives. And and finally, um, to this I actually idea, I just thought of this this issue of generational shift. I mean, a lot of people comment on, you know, the younger generation in Russia is more kind of quote unquote westernized. They're they have a you know they don't have the same connections to the the, the Soviet system. Um, they, a lot of people ascribe a lot of kind of positive you know, a positive future for Russia in terms of that. Where, what about this generational divide culturally? Does it, how do you understand it? I think generational divides always exist, and, and they're always overplayed. Um, and I think the extent to which the generational divide is obvious is automatically a cause for liberal optimism is really kind of dubious. Um, precisely because, Yes, the younger generation is more westernized in terms of its consumption habits, um, way of carrying itself. But again, this is form that, that doesn't automatically have to be filled with, say, liberal democratic content. Quite the contrary. The younger generation also has um, less direct reason to be at all afraid of the Soviet past or know much about the Soviet past and presumably can be quite influenced by um, this notion of greatness, just as the younger generation everywhere, including here, in the states can um uh really i mean i think i think one way to uh, understand um some of this nationalist enthusiasm that's going on there is to translate it back to a crowd of people shouting usa 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 um and then that that becomes a little bit more familiar that was elliot bornstein a professor of russian and slavic studies at new york university and author of overkill sex violence in russian popular culture after 1991 John Paul Himka is a professor emeritus in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta. He is co-author with Joanna Bita Michlik of Bringing the Dark Past to Light, the Reception of the Holocaust and Post-Communist Europe. His recent article is Legislating Historical Truth, Ukraine's Laws of 9 April 2015, published at Abenperio. Last week, the Ukrainian parliament adopted four laws concerning historical memory. Uh, two of the laws on the status and honoring of fighters for Ukraine's independence in the 20th century and on condemning the communist national socialist totalitarian regimes and prohibiting propaganda of their symbols sparked a wave of criticism inside and outside Ukraine, particularly from scholars. Uh, what makes these laws so problematic? Uh, a, num a number of features of them. Uh, one is that the law on, uh, on, uh, on the fighters and participants in the uh, uh, wars for independence, uh, in a list of those to be honored uh, are included the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, or UN, as we call it in Ukrainian, and the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, UPA, which have a very controversial record since... Uh, both of them were involved in the Holocaust, and the uh, UPA, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, uh, was engaged in a massive ethnic cleansing of the Polish population, which claimed, uh, it's hard to say how many victims, but maybe 60,000 victims, um, mainly civilians. Um, and, uh, so the, and, and it closes off discussion about their historical role. So that's a real problem. It means it's very hard to uh, look into their past. Uh, 
Well, because you can be actually arrested for uh, for having uh, uh, the wrong kind of attitude towards them, and uh, uh, scholarly studies will be checked to make sure that there are no falsifications of the historical record, which uh, is is uh, is a problem. It's a, it's a problem also from the freedom of inquiry and freedom of expression side of things. So, and 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 in particular, it's a a problem which um, you know, which is Ukraine, and Ukraine wants to be part of Europe. Uh, the the Maidan, which which brought the the new uh, government's power, was called the Euro Maidan. It started over uh, a dispute about whether we should turn, that is, whether Ukraine should turn to Europe or to Russia, and then uh, to pass a law like this, in which Holocaust perpetrators and perpetrators of of ethnic cleansing are to be honored and you can't uh, criticize them. Uh, this is at variance with the European value that you have to come clean about your Holocaust history and it's sort of a guarantee that you have a real commitment to human rights and to the, and to the um, um, civil liberties which are currently associated with Europe. So that's part of the problem. Uh, then. Another problem I would say is more of a political and practical problem. That comes in the one when condemning communist and national socialist symbols uh, and propaganda. I don't know, I don't think anybody really knows uh, how the country as a whole is going to react to that because there are uh, people who one way or another are invested in that Soviet history. It could be that they're uh, Grandparents or their parents uh, fought in the Second World War in the Red Army. They were honored as veterans. It could be that, uh, you know, a lot of people in that society, there wasn't a lot of choices of what you could do. Very few people chose to become dissidents in communist society because it was very dangerous to do so. You wanted to do constructive work, and you wanted to do constructive work in politics, there was only one party out there. So, uh, you know, large numbers of People who, who could be proud of their parents' achievements or even of their earlier achievements could find this law unsettling. I don't know if they will. Uh, we'll have to see if there's any any real reaction as the law is implemented. So those are some some of the problems with the law. I think those are the major problems. Uh huh. And what do you think about the in terms of the kind of banning the banning the symbolism, particularly of the the communist period? How do you think this could affect? the actual a kind of objective, balanced study of Ukraine-Soviet experience? Well, I don't know whether that will be uh, terribly affected because I can't imagine that someone would be writing a study uh, less quite on the margins uh, about all the great achievements of Soviet Ukraine. But it, it is possible. But I think that... Uh, what one worries about is, is, is nuance. Uh, you know, if, if the Soviet Union was just Nazi Germany uh, in all periods, then are you, are you going to undertake some of the very serious work that I think should be undertaken on the social history of the late Soviet period, uh, on, on uh, the econ economy of the late Soviet period, uh, and, and done not from just simply a condemnatory point of view, but actually to find out what it was that produced Ukraine that we have today. 
So you know you don't you don't understand history by um, by taking a black and white point of view. Uh, you know certainly there are some things which are pretty black in history and some things which are pretty good in history. But um, you know you, you have you have to look you have to look at things in their, in their whole context. And in laws like this, they shut down context, they shut down nuance, uh, and they they can intimidate people. I don't know to what extent this law will be applied uh, to scholars. Uh, the law says it applies to scholars. These laws say it applies to scholarly works. So let's let's just see how it's interpreted and whether anybody is. I know that actually. Somebody has recently um, taken, has recently applied to uh, put, um, uh, has charged somebody under this law. But it's a private citizen, probably a bit of a nutcase, has taken a, a Ukrainian historian uh, and, uh, and uh, tried to charge him under the law. Yeah, I, I know this this kind of law these kinds of things more in, in, in Russia in terms of World War II, where, you know, they pass a law, they'll have a law where about, you know, against the falsification of the memory of the war. And the question is, well, how will it be applied? And if at all, um, in the Russian case, it seems to be being used in a variety of ways, both legally and not. But nonetheless, there is the question of how will this be applied? Yes. And I think that's very, first of all, as of now, the law hasn't been signed. Uh, the bills haven't been uh, signed into law. They've been passed, as it were, by the Ukrainian Congress, Parliament, but uh, the president still has to sign it, which I think he probably will do. Now, another law, which I actually saw a lot of people praising, uh, concerns the issue of archives. The law is on access to archives of repressive bodies of the communist totalitarian regime, 1917 and 1991. And this law allows for the declassification and the opening of archival materials relating to the KGB. Um, however, in your article in Ab Imperial, you state that this law is problematic as well. Uh, why do you think so? Well, there's there's a couple reasons for that. First, the first is, a, is understanding what is proposed. Opening the archives can be done uh, without creating a central archive under the control of the institute, the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory. You could simply declare all these uh, materials open, and they were declared open. Uh, the SBU archives, that is the um, archives of the, of the security organs, were uh, declared open uh, in the past, and uh, and they were quite accessible, and uh, they were still quite accessible uh, even under Yanukovych, uh, and uh, so the, the, that's kind of big change. Uh, what is the really big change is the idea that they will take some four million archival units remove them from the other collections where they're now housed, and put them under control of this institution in, in IKEA. So um, the, the Association of the Ukrainian uh, Archivists, the Ukrainian Archivist Society, has, uh, has, um, has expressed their opposition to this law, and, and historian Basilio Savage, who has no problem with the other laws, uh, also has a problem with this. And I think a and it's sort of empire building on the part of this Ukrainian uh, uh, Institute of National Memory, which is also very much involved in the drafting of these laws and 
has a very uh, uh, one-sided approach to uh, history. So uh, uh, one wonders, uh, you know, in, in, in the end, how how accessible everything will be. But the other problem is larger. The larger problem is why aren't the archives just being opened? Now my experience, right, and and my experience uh, has not been particularly good with those archives uh, that emanate from the German occupation authorities or the period of the Nazi occupation. Uh, the first ones I wanted to see, well, that was a while ago. It was in, uh, in 1989 or 1990 when the archives were first opened. No, yeah. Uh, no, it was actually 1999. 1999, it was very difficult to get any access at that point to the archives and uh, it, was, it was almost impossible to work with. Well, uh, at that time, I wasn't even working seriously in the Holocaust, which I'm working on now. Um, but uh, in 2011, I got a, a volunteer research assistant in in in, in Ukraine, the capital of Western Ukraine, and she was. I asked her to look for me for the records of the uh, militia of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists which existed from late June of 1941 until August of 1941. And they would not, the archives would not even tell her where they were housed, although they were housed in those archives, the uh, state archives of the Oblast. And uh, they wouldn't even let her look at police records from the auxiliary police and German service. And, and their feeling was that these could be used to prosecute uh, people uh, who are policemen or militiamen. But how can you, how can you find out the history of uh, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists if you do not have the records of their militia that exist, the extant records? Now, though, it turned out that the um, United States uh, uh, Office of Special Investigations, which is part of the Justice Department, had microfilmed all the militia files way back when, when the archives were really open in the 90s. And um, as a result, uh, they made they were able to give me copies of what I needed for my research. But they're very important. And the police records as well are very important for understanding the organization of Ukrainian nationalists because it gives all the information and all the information about uh, the militiamen who then applied to join the police. They're different formations. Uh, and then uh, also it gave uh, very detailed uh, information on the participation of the police uh, in the uh, roundup of, of Jews for uh, uh, execution. So how, how can you study these, how can you study this uh, organization of Ukrainian nationalists if you don't have access to the files from the German occupation. So those aren't open. But Soviet archives of repression are open. Why not just open all the archives? Yeah, it is a bit strange that, you know, if you want to open the archives, as you said, just, just well, then just open them and make them accessible to, to researchers, even if the money is there to begin a process of digitization and all of these things. But, but why centralize these archives 
into a central place in Kiev, I, I don't really understand what the motivation is there. Well, I guess it it prevents traveling around. Uh, I mean, it, you know, then you don't you can go to one central place and see and see all the archives. But all the money that's going to be spent doing that is uh, because it is, as I say, four million archival units. Um, well, that's what the archivists estimate. Well, that money could be used uh, for microfilming, and then you could centralize the microfilms if you wanted. Once you have microfilms, it's possible to do, you know, scanning. Uh, that's the United States uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum, which, by the way, has many of the police records. They also microfilmed early. Uh, they've microfilmed lots of material from all over the world from the archives, but they didn't take the archives. They just microfilmed them, and on this central theme, there's this repository there where you can go to Washington and you can work, and uh, and it works very well. And I suppose they have something like that in mind for uh, KU. You, you already commented on this, on, on the potential problem of uh, doing research on the Ukrainian nationalist movement's involvement in the Holocaust. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what is the status of the memory of the Holocaust in Ukraine, and in particular the participation of Ukrainians in, in this this uh, in this genocide. Well, um, Holocaust awareness, as we understand it, is um, not very well developed in Ukraine. Uh, on the other hand, a number of people uh, believe that they are being picked on for the Holocaust. Uh, they look at the case, say, of John uh, Demyanyuk, who was uh, arrested and. Uh, uh, and spent many years in prisons and in investigation until his death, and they feel that uh, the Germans are trying to blame the Holocaust on us, that is, on the Ukrainians. Uh, but a real confrontation with the Holocaust past in the country is something that uh, was sort of nipped in the bud. In the year 2006, there was a very interesting uh, debate going on in the uh, uh, Ukrainian journal Kritika, uh, which is modeled sort of on the New York Times or the Times Literary Supplement, that kind of paper. And it began to explore uh, the nationalist participation in the Holocaust. But uh, that uh, quickly ran the ground. Uh, those who were uh, working on it uh, were, were uh, pretty much denounced. And, uh, and a lot of us in the West were working on this topic. A lot of us, you know, a handful of us in the West were working on this topic. But people also of Ukrainian origin or, or uh, emigrates from Ukraine, recent emigrates from Ukraine. Uh, and, and not so much emigrates, but migrants from Ukraine. And, uh, and then it closed down uh, under uh, Yushchenko, the president Yushchenko of the Orange Revolution. Uh, he began to start a very public campaign to rehabilitate the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and the Ukrainian insurgent army. And it had quite a profound effect, I think, on attitudes. Uh, he also was pushing uh, a commemoration of the Great Famine, the Hall of the Water of 1932-33. Uh, and uh, under, under President, he was defeated uh, in the presidential election, presidential elections. About 2010, uh, and is replaced by Yanukovych. 
Under Yanukovych, there was no serious work on the Holocaust as well. But some people in the party of regions made it a little specialty to, uh, to, uh, take what was being written in the West about all own participation, that's, uh, participation in the Holocaust and in the, and in the murder of Poles. And, uh, and then presented in these sort of pamphlets showing how bad the Western Ukrainians were, that, you know, that they, uh, they're basically barbarians, but this, so they formed various anti-fascist committees, but these are the sort of forerunners of, uh, of the kind of Russian propaganda and of the kind of anti-Ukrainian attitudes that you see sometimes in Ukraine. And they're not serious studies of the Holocaust, they're not serious awareness of the Holocaust. It's not a question that they actually care about the Holocaust, but for them, the Holocaust is something you club, uh, you club people with Ukrainian national orientation with. So, uh, no work, I say no work, but I take that back. Uh, there is a, a small group, uh, uh, that work, that works on this topic and prominent in Ukraine is a young historian, Yuri Radchenko, uh, who uh, has done research all over Germany, Toronto in the emigre archives, uh, Yad Vashem, I mean, the last time I saw him was at Yad Vashem, and the time I saw him before that was in Toronto. Uh, so he travels a lot, and he takes a, a very uh, um, balanced, but outspoken stand on these issues. Uh, there's also other historians who perhaps are not working directly on the Holocaust, but have been pretty um, clear about the xenophobic and anti-Semitic tendencies uh, of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. An example there would be a, 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 a good historian by the name of Oleksandr Zaitsev, who has written a book on Ukrainian integral nationalism before World War II. Uh, and, uh, and that, that, as far as, as the, as the pre-World War II period goes, it doesn't pull any punches. So, uh, you know, there are people working on this. Um, but as I say, the basic attitude, oh, basic attitude is we didn't do the Holocaust, the Germans did a Holocaust, why are you blaming us? Now, meanwhile, Holocaust studies have moved into a period where it's much more being perceived as a pan-European project. Um, certainly, the French have had to go through uh, a lot of changes to come to where they, not all of them, but where some of them are today, in recognizing the part that uh, the Vichy government and, and, and uh, played in, in, in the in the murder of the of the Jewish population in France, so uh, you know this is uh, this is well uh, um, demonstrated, say by films like Sarah's Key or, or others that have come out recently, which show uh, the uh, collaboration of the French with the Holocaust. And this kind of confrontation, realizing what happened, is is uh, is not going on. Yeah, as as you've noticed, noted the the politics of memory is a is an incredibly you know important and and unfortunately uh, 
um, partisan issue in Ukrainian politics in general. I mean, each side using, you know, either the Soviet period or, in, as you mentioned, the Holocaust, the Ukrainian nationalist participation in the Holocaust against against each other. Um, now the the laws that that were passed by the by the Rada last week were from all indications were drawn up by uh the director of the Institute of National Memory uh Volodymyr Vetrovich. Uh what's what's the role of this institute and, and him in particular in, in the Ukraine's politics of historical memory? Well, he's a very important figure. Uh he in interviews has um broadly hinted that he's the main author of these laws, but I have also uh, uh, read uh, a good insider uh, person who should know saying that he, he wasn't actually consulted on the drafting of the laws. Although, I don't, and, and so, uh, um, however, I don't know why anybody else would want to empire build the Ukrainian uh National uh, Ukrainian Institute of National Memory with that huge archive and you know that new building you would have to build in downtown Kiev and and um, you know so I, I think that that they they did play a, a major role uh, and I think he played a major role. He's a he's an interesting uh, interesting fellow. He was one of the founding founding director of the um, center. For the study of the liberation movement, uh, which is a pro OUN, that is the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, uh, research uh, unit uh, in Lviv. Uh, it's loosely, it's not really attached to the Academy of Sciences, but it is housed in, uh, it is housed with the Academy. It's like a parallel kind of organization. Uh, he made a real big name for himself in 2007, uh, a very, very public name. Uh, he was, uh, at that time, you know, busily engaged in uh, working on, uh, on the organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, and he had written a, 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 some you know, sort of glorifying texts, and he had written a, a book which... Uh, I reviewed with a, with a student of mine, uh, we reviewed his book, uh, on the attitude of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists towards the Jews. And we didn't think much of this book because, well, first of all, it was all very one-sided, uh, didn't, and didn't cite any literature, uh, on the Holocaust in English or German. Those are very important uh, studies that you want to understand, or, or anti-Semitism. Uh, nor did it consult any victims' narratives. So, uh, actually, on many levels, it was a real problematic uh, piece of work. But that didn't win him fame. What, what won him fame was in 2007, uh, when uh, the... the um, the person who was the commander of the Ukrainian insurgent army, uh, Roman Shukhevich, was made an honorary, was made a hero of Ukraine posthumously by President Yushchenkov. And this was denounced by somebody in Israel, somebody associated with the Yad Vashem Institute, which is a Holocaust museum and, and research institute. And this person said 
Uh, and this was not exactly a major researcher at Yad Vashem, but he was more on the board of Yad Vashem. He was a community person. Uh, he said that in Yad Vashem, there's a thick file documenting the war crimes of uh, Roman Sukhavich. Well, uh, the Ukrainian, the, the, the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory s sent a, a delegation which included, um, which included, um, um, a, a, a Volodymyr to Yad Vashem where they confronted the, uh, the, the Institute and said, where is the file on Sukhavich? And there was no. There was, uh, and, 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 uh, and as a result, he came back, trumpeted this in the, in the, uh, all through the press. Uh, the, uh, uh, the government also trumpeted this as a great triumph. Uh, at the same time, uh, uh, Vyotrovich had found, uh, the KGB, uh, documents, uh, that, uh, showed that uh, some of the accusations against Shukhevich were total fabrications. So Shukhevich was blamed for the Lviv pogrom, but it turned out this wasn't a KGB fabrication. And, uh, and, and, and he was able to show the KGB uh, fabricating the case. And, and other things like that. He was put on TV, uh, and he exonerated the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. The uh, head of the uh, 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 security service of Ukraine, Valentin Nalavaychenko, who was head of security under the Yushchenko government, uh, he gave he he promoted Vyotrovich's uh, uh, views. He had what were called uh, civic hearings on the issue of uh, Oun and claimed that they were totally innocent because. Uh, uh, because of the evidence that was found or not found. They also did a little deception with the evidence, but I'll, I'll save that. Now, Valentin Nalavichenko is the current, uh, current, uh, head of the security service of Ukraine. Then, uh, uh under, under the Yushchenko government at one time, uh, uh, Vatrovich was made head of the archive of the, uh, security services. In which case, in, at which time he opened all the, uh, archives of the security service. It's a very good thing for him to do. Uh, he also was involved in a number of things. He came back into, uh, uh, he was very active on the, on the Maidan, uh, giving speeches about Oun and others. And now, as you see, he's been, uh, uh promoted to the, uh, National, Ukrainian Institute of National Memory. And has uh, an influence on uh, on legislation. So he's he's an interesting interesting fellow. Now, uh, finally, because we're running out of time here, um, many commentators have pointed out that one of the real positive outcomes of the Maidan Revolution has the, been the strengthening of a Ukrainian civic identity as a means, an overarching means to include. Ukraine's multi-ethnic, multilingual, and multi-confessional population. Um, in what ways do these laws perhaps help or harm this development? Well, I think it's a it's a wager right now whether they're going to harm or help. Right? 
Ukraine has never been more united than it is today. Given the war, uh, given the loss of Crimea and uh, eastern Donbass, where there was a lot of opposition to the current Ukrainian government, uh, given the unenviable nature of the kind of government that exists, and the kind of situation that exists in the eastern Donbass, not many people in Ukraine are eager to be in the midst of a war zone and to be run by uh, the kind of people who run the Luhansk and, and uh, Donetsk uh, republics. So right now, Ukraine is more uh, united. Uh, it had been divided by the language issue, Russian speakers, Ukrainian speakers. That has fallen out. Not even the ethnic conflict between Russians and Ukrainians, uh, although I've heard quite a bit of anti-Russian uh, uh, comments, uh, essentialist anti-Russian comments visiting Western Ukraine this summer, this past summer. But overall, it's a moment where if you're going to get everybody on board with one historical vision, this is probably your best bet to do it. So it could consolidate Ukrainian uh, identity in a way that it's never been consolidated before. That is an identity for that country called Ukraine. On the other hand, it could backfire. It could be that uh, this, this laws and their implementation will actually cause uh, resentment and discontent. The only way to know is to, is to see what happens in the future. I don't, I don't predict the future. Uh, but, uh, I, 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 you know, that is a possible, it's a real possibility. Some people may feel that, uh, they're, they're under attack from this. Uh, then there's a sort of long run question. What do you do if you create a national identity? That includes the glorification of, uh, if, if, if it includes the glorification of people who killed Jews and, and Poles. And actually, for that matter, Roma and others that they found. Uh, then you might have to revise. So I don't think, I don't think it's what I would call a smart move. But it's a move that could consolidate or could, uh, weaken. And then it depends on what Mr. Putin wants to do. If he's going to launch a spring offensive, uh, then uh, this could be used to mobilize discontent. I don't know. This is all unpredictable. That was John Paul Himka, Professor Emeritus in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta and author of Legislating Historical Truth, Ukraine's Laws of 9 April 2015, published at Ab Imperio. I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and follow me on Twitter at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next week, bye. Моя морозечка, моя ты куколка, моя морозечка, моя ты душенька, моя морозечка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.